Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, March the 29th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Fintan O'Toole joins us today. Fintan, we are now only about a week and a half away from what promises to be a a vast and perhaps over self-congratulatory anniversary, it seems to me. Joe Biden is going to be coming to town and presumably many others of the great and good who are involved in uh, in the Belfast Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement. Before we talk about the agreement I wonder, what do you think of the kind of anniversary-itis that we, uh, that we tend to indulge in these days? I'm sort of in favour of it. <laughs> it's just, you know, we're in a culture which sort of moves on so fast, you know, and, and the sort of rush of events is, is just so overpowering, I think, that uh, although um, I gather from your tone you're a bit sceptical of it, but <laughs> we need some form in which we actually at least sort of pause a bit and try to remember things and try to think about Okay, that happened then. What what are its consequences, and where where does it all sit now? So yeah, I know what you mean about you know becoming uh, hooked on it's twenty five years, it's thirty years, it's thirty five years since whatever happened. But in this case, uh, I think it's no harm actually just to reflect on the fact that uh, twenty five years is quite a long time, and we've lived with the agreement now for a generation. And it's maybe useful just to review it, to think it through, to think about what what were its potentials um, and and have they been realised. You're right. And you're right to chide me for being too sceptical <laughs> about it. I'm only mildly sceptical about it sometimes. In some cases, I think it's overdone, not in this instance. I mean, one of the things that they do for us, these, uh, these anniversaries, is they kind of remind us of the weirdness of the way time sort of shortens and lengthens in the human memory. Uh, like, I'm struck by the way in which a lot of people have reacted to the current resurgence of the Kerry Baby story. They've sort of reacted with shock that some of the protagonists now involved are only in their 50s, as if this was something that happened a century ago. You know, so so time is strange in terms of the way we conceive of it and the way lives pass and new generations come along and other ones depart. Yeah, very much so. You know, I, I, I was actually just thinking about this for a column I was doing on Saturday, you know, that, I mean, Ireland is unusual, I think, in terms of the lack of nostalgia about the past. Uh, we're often accused of being a very sentimental people, but I, I think actually the opposite is the case, you know. Um I was just looking back on a, there was a big um, Ipsos World uh, Global study there uh, two years ago, I think. You know, it included, you know, India, China, some African countries. So it was, it was pretty kind of representative. And they included Ireland. But one of the questions they asked was um, uh, this very simple but very telling question of, uh, I wish things were the way they used to be. And, you know, almost without exception around the world, most countries, most populations said, yeah, I, I wish things were the way they used to be. And uh, the two least nostalgic countries in that sense were China, which is pretty understandable. I think uh, if I was Chinese looking back on um, the 20th century, I wouldn't be particularly wishing that things were the way they used to be. And Ireland. I mean, Ireland was next after China. And it's it's very interesting, I think, that... uh, 
This may be one of the reasons why, in spite of recent events, the far right has had a, a more difficult time in Ireland, you know, which is which is that actually the far right around the world is, is built on nostalgia. It's built on the idea that, you know, things used to be great in the past. There was a golden age and it's been taken away from us uh, by whatever various forces and the great leader can get us back there. Um, that narrative doesn't doesn't work here because actually we're not very nostalgic about the past, and and uh, it's pretty obvious reasons. <laughs> you know, when was the Irish Golden Age? You know, it's it's, it's kind of hard to put your finger on one, isn't it? But may, maybe a, a, a sort of corollary of that is that we uh, we we experience the past in this kind of very weird way, where it it, it sort of it just keeps. Uh, exploding into the present as if from nowhere. So uh, as you were saying, like things like the Kerry Babies thing, just suddenly, you know, it's back. Uh, Mother and baby homes. Oh God, you know, we never heard of those things. No, look, you know, we're literally digging up bodies in in Chewham. You know, uh, sexual abuse in schools. Uh, You know, who ever knew that happened? You know, (laughs) it's as if each of these stories which have been going on now for decades, you know, but they they keep reappearing as, as if they're new and shocking. Um, so yeah, it, it is quite a strange relationship to the past. So when we then, when we look at the Belfast Agreement, and before we go into the, the the detail of what happened and how we look at that now, it also it is the pivot point in a way, isn't it? In Irish history, the second half of the nineteen nineties, it's the it's the economic turn, it's the beginning of the end of the dominance of you know the clerical Catholic Church in the form of the divorce referendum and and other things which followed. It's the society we live in now begins to emerge at that point. Yeah, I I think that's a that's a that's a crucial point you make. You know that that uh, yes, of course, it's hugely important in itself. Um, but y- you know there there was an unmistakable sense in in ninety eight that uh, I I don't think anybody thought this is going to be simple and it's all going to be you know gravy from here on in. But there was absolutely a sense of a turning point. You know that. We've now given ourselves the possibility of getting out of this hole which has been dug for Irish history, uh, really, you know, all, all through the entire period of the liberation struggle and the War of Independence and Civil War and, you know, all that unfinished business. It's not that it's finished, but that the ways in which we will deal with it in future will be fundamentally different. And, you know, it was a time of of great optimism, Um you know, it was it was an optimism that was kicked in the teeth by the Omar bomb, and and you know, the, the, any kind of happy clappy stuff uh, disappeared pretty fast. But the broader sense, I think that that uh, that that Ireland was emerging into a different kind of sense of itself, a different sort of identity, was very potent, and and it does, as you say, coincide with things that are also happening uh like the the Ryan report for example into industrial schools well that's going to that's going to be kind of that process is going to be started by say Mary Raftery's program state states of fear you know which are which are which are around the same time you know sort of opening up of the past in in different ways um so so you you have this kind of simultaneous sense that history is um, being opened up and you know we're we're talking about it and examining it and in a funny way that also some of it's being closed down by the Belfast Agreement, you know, that the a certain kind of way of thinking about Ireland and Irish nationalism is coming towards its end. 
So the peace process which led up to the agreement in, in Easter 1998, it was long and tortuous and there were many individuals and politicians involved, not just Bertie Heron and Tony Blair in the respective premierships at the time, but the American influence of Bill Clinton, the role, central role of George Mitchell, you know, the, the pivotal role of, of Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness in moving the IRA away from, away from, from, from violence, the first ceasefire that collapsed, the second ceasefire. Through all that, it seems to me, and I don't know if you agree with this, is that the picture which was being painted of a better future and the analysis of the problem and how to fix it really comes back to one man more than anything else, and that's John Hume. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's an awful shame if, if, uh, if, if, if this is forgotten. You know, um, whatever people think about the Belfast Agreement, good, bad, indifferent, you know, it's primarily Hume's intellectual and political achievements, you know. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange achievement. Uh, Hume had become, I wouldn't say a figure of fun, but he was mocked a lot, you know, for his uh, saying of the same things over and over again, you know. And so there was, you know, people talked about Hume's speak. They talked about his single transferable speech, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, but he, he repeated certain notions so often that he actually started to hear them coming back to him, you know, and he got them into the atmosphere. And, you know, one of those absolutely critical notions was uh, that uh, you had to start talking about the sharing of space, you know, the way he kind of reconceptualized the problem really as, you know, uh, how, how do you stop it being a zero sum game, you know, whether it's, you know, it's either, a united ireland or a united kingdom you know how, how do you stop that you have to start thinking about uh, about what are the ways in which you can actually share the island and you know that's that's become again almost a kind of cliche itself now but conceptually uh hugely important and um you know hume's, hume's sense that um as he kept saying you don't make peace with your friends you make peace with your enemies you know that that making peace required a leap um, where there was enough ground given by everybody in order to just create a space uh, where where reconciliation it was at least uh, conceivable. And his other idea, you know, which was there implicitly, I think, all through this was um, sort of getting us away from what you can die, what you want to die for to what you can live with. You know, this this idea of of what's tolerable, what's what's um, you know, you know, people don't have to have their their ultimate maximalist aims in order to be able to live pretty comfortably. You know, and and the achievement of the Belfast Agreement was just to say, actually, you know what? There's an awful lot here that people can live with if you can create some sense of uh, of equality, some sense that uh, you know nobody is being besieged, but also nobody is uh, imposing superiority on anybody else. Uh, then, then actually it's possible for Northern Ireland to begin to settle down uh, and in a way to postpone its long-term future and create a space in which people just live together and then see what happens. Now, what ha- what's happened is not uh, by any means the most optimistic version of what people thought might happen, um, but the creation of that space, not, nonetheless, I think it, it has been hugely valuable. Yeah, I, d- I mean, I... I do wonder, obviously, what what John Hume did, I think, undoubtedly saved hundreds, if not thousands of lives, along with the many other people who moved their, you know, very entrenched in some cases, political positions in order to in order to to occupy this new post post violent kind of space. But 
there was some criticism at the time and I think it's still there and it's probably mounted because of what's happened over the last 25 years What was that the 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 putting into political structures of his political analysis, the two traditions that have to live together and structures which much accommodate them, um, was in some cases perhaps inevitably and perhaps necessarily overly rigid into establishing those two opposing camps and that has been a recurring problem with the political system ever since in Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah, I would strongly agree with that. You know, I think when we think about the the agreements, you know, we 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 have to deal with with it on two levels. I think one is the the radical and 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 desirable rethinking that it does, uh, and we might come back to some of those things. You know, that's I, I think some of it is kind of con- conceptually pretty bold, and it's um, grim necessity of dealing with 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 realities as they existed. You know, uh, so so s- some of the Belfast Agreement is a sort of way of trying to think about identity and belonging in Ireland over the long term, and some of it's just about. What the hell do you need to do to get it to stop? You know, the fundamental perception was you just had to stop the conflict before you could do anything else. You know, that there was no chance of any kind of political settlement holding if the IRA and the loyalist paramilitaries were outside it. And, you know, that that then involved um, giving a hugely disproportionate power to the paramilitaries, you know, because uh, let's face it, there was the the implicit uh, acceptance, which took so long to get to, right, which was that you have to include people who who may or may not have a democratic mandate. I mean, the loyalist paramilitaries, for example, had very, very little in terms of an electoral mandate, but it was absolutely crucial that that uh, they were part of the process. Why? Because they might kill you otherwise, and if they if they start killing you, they're they're going to destroy any sense of institutions taking hold. And the same was true, albeit in a different way, uh, for for the IRA, which 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 certainly did have. A very substantial political mandate through Sinn Féin, but nonetheless, people forget, you know, Sinn Féin was still the second force in Irish nationalism in the North. You know, the SDLP was the largest party and its power was taken away to some extent. So you've got this irony that Hume was the intellectual architect, but the power within the negotiations shifted towards Sinn Féin. Why? Because Sinn Féin had a private army, you know, and and this is pretty grim stuff to have to accept. But a part of that, undoubtedly, then, was this freezing of the definition of the conflict into sectarian terms. Now, you would have to be an awful idiot not to accept that there was, you know, that there were two tribes, that sectarianism was very real, that the that that antagonism uh, was at the heart of the conflict. But what gets squeezed out, of course, is the the middle ground, which which is what has started to emerge. There's a certain contradiction here intellectually between what the agreement says and what the Irish constitution and the change in the Irish constitution as part of the agreement says. So the agreement is all based on two two traditions, as you say, parity of esteem between two traditions. The great Edna Longley asked the question about, are we not allowed parity of disesteem? (laughs) But anyway, um, so, but, you know, that's all this kind of, this dualism. The Irish constitution, which we all, uh, uh, you know, well, almost all of us uh, voted to, to to change. It was, what, 92% or something uh, consensus. To say that the aspiration of the Irish nation was to unite in harmony and friendship all those who share the territory of the island of Ireland in all the diversity of their identities and traditions, right? So our constitution doesn't say two tribes, two identities, 
uh, it's not binary, right? It, it accepts that there are multiple identities and it sort of celebrates diversity beyond the idea of, of, the, of the two tribes. So you have this sort of incoherence in a way around uh, all of this. My own view of it is that, uh, practically speaking, there was probably no way out of it in 1998 other than to, in a way, fossilize and institutionalize the sectarian division and then say, okay, well, there is a sectarian division. Let's see how we deal with it. Uh, and of course, all the internal problems really have have arisen from that. Uh, but I think it's still very, very difficult, even in hindsight, to think back and say, how how are you going to not do that? Uh, how how are you going to construct something uh, which did not institutionalize those divisions? I still can't quite imagine what kind of acceptable settlement when you've got paramilitaries involved, when you've got the need to end a conflict, when you've got these very, very um, deeply entrenched ideas of sectarian identity. I'm not sure how else you could have done it in 98. And in terms of the eclipsing of the SDLP by Sinn Féin and indeed of the Ulster Unionist Party by the DUP which in the, in, in the years that followed, I mean, some have suggested that, that Hume actually knew that was going to happen, that as well as sacrificing his own health in pursuit of these objectives, he knew he was probably sacrificing the SDLP. And also there's been a suggestion, I think, that that maybe both governments in, in London and in Dublin knew that they needed to bring the uh, the more extreme parties on both sides, the Nationalist and Unionist side, into the fold at some point, which would mean that they would end up being the most powerful parties in Northern Ireland. Yeah, you see the logic, and and I mean this is the logic of of having a private army, right? I mean, let, let, you know, we, we have to be really honest about this, right? Is that you have to be given something else? You know, the, the IRA was undefeated, right? It was also incapable of winning, but it was also undefeated. I mean, incredibly successful terrorist organization in 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 twentieth century terms. The loyalist paramilitaries were able to sustain themselves and and go on. You know, their campaigns were in some ways brutally simple. They just wanted to murder Catholics, so that's very easy to do. So uh, they were both capable of 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 sustaining the conflict for for you know the foreseeable future. And so, therefore, there was a need to give them success. You know, alternative success, and this involved uh, particularly in relation to Sinn Fein. I mean. In a way, it was really important that Sinn Féin, you know, did very well in elections, you know, because that was the dynamic that allowed McGuinness and Adams to make the case for their own constituency that we can achieve our ends by other means. You know, uh, we don't need the ballot box and the Armalite, we can just do it through the ballot box. But implicit in that was that actually, you know, it was sort of in everybody's interest that they had success at the ballot box. But uh, not particularly in the interests of the SDLP, you know, and the dynamic with the lawyers' parliamentaries was was somewhat different. But let's face it; I mean, they were given as part of the peace process. I mean, access to huge amounts of funding, um, you know, lots of uh, community projects and community workers and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, and and so they were they were allowed to have success and to continue to exist, which they still do in slightly different forms. And that was um, that was the price that had to be paid. Uh, you know, you could see the uh, the whole process at at one level as a buying off of paramilitary groups. You know, and and um, again, that's that's very unpleasant. Uh, remember, this involved as well. I mean, releasing from prison uh, people who had committed horrific crimes. Some of the worst loyalist killers were let out of jail. Some of some people who committed atrocities on the Republican side were let out of jail. 
These are very unpleasant things. You know, they're not they're not things that, uh, in the abstract, uh, most people, I think, if they were just presented these propositions as as abstract ones, would agree with. But they made absolute sense in the context of the overall deal, and they were just they were ne- they were necessary. So there was a certain amount, I think, that just had to be swallowed. And one of the things that had to be swallowed was that dynamic, because it wasn't just that the SCLP was probably going to be sidelined. As you say, it was also that the Ulster Unionist Party, that you know, David Trimble's courage in in pushing through on the unionist side agreement to to to, to the deal, uh, you know, w- was also ultimately going to be punished, because the logic was if you do a tribal architecture in terms of political power in Belfast, uh, where you have two sides, uh, that logic is probably going to lead each uh, electorate towards saying, well, if it's us and them, we better have the most, um, the toughest part of us, you know, the our hard men and hard women are the ones who are best able to deal with the other side, you know. So the Shinners are best able to deal with the Unionists and, and Paisley is best able to deal with, with the Shinners. You know, there, there's, a, there's a logic there which was certainly set in motion throughout the peace process. It is interesting though, isn't it, that the, the, the project of converting violent loyalism from paramilitarism into into party politics was considerably less successful than than it was on the on the republican side you know which which shows i think you know that getting too both sizes about the binary in northern ireland can be misleading there are complexities different complexities in the way politics work on both sides but the other the other thing that really strikes me actually in in recent years is the opinion polling, which shows a really dramatic shift in opinion among the nationalist part of the population in Northern Ireland in terms of its views of what was happening before the agreement. Because at the time, in the in the years before the late 1990s, the great majority of people who identified as nationalist or Catholic were opposed to the IRA's campaign of violence. And that's now flipped at this point when they look back at it historically or when a newer generation looks back at it. Yes, yes. Um I think there are two factors at work there. I mean, one is distance. You know, um, that great line at the end of uh, the Playboy, the Western World. You know, there's a great gap between a gallus story and a dirty deed. You know, uh, the the codification of the conflict into stories and heroic stories distances you from the dirty deeds uh, that that it actually consisted of. Uh, so there is that element of it that that, that happens over over time, but. As you suggest, I think there's also that sort of um, that sense in which the Belfast Agreement, although it in fact conceded very little to Irish nationalists that was not available a long, long, long time before. I mean, Seamus Mallon's famous line about Sunningdale for slow learners uh, has a lot of validity, but because it was the first time in a way that Sinn Féin was involved in this process and Jerry Adams and McGuinness were so so prominent in it. It allowed a sort of retrofitting of a certain narrative, right? Which was that nothing that was conceded in the Belfast Agreement would have been possible without the IRA campaign. That seems to me to be historically unjustifiable. You know, uh, there, there really isn't a vast amount in the Belfast Agreement that was not uh, not just not already available, but in a way already conceded. Just to give you one example of this, Sinn Féin continually says that, and said at the time, you know, one of the great breakthroughs of the Belfast Agreement was that the British government accepted for the first time that it had no uh, long-term strategic interest in holding on to Northern Ireland. It's an incredible breakthrough. 
But it wasn't, you know. <laughs> you know, that had been there there for 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 decades. You know, uh, the, the Brits had 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 formally accepted that they were quite happy to get out of Northern Ireland if if at any stage a majority uh, a majority a majority of plus one in in Northern Ireland ever ever agreed for that to happen, uh, which is basically the situation that was kind of codified in 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 the Belfast Agreement. So. Again, it was sort of in everybody's interests to allow Sinn Féin to overstate what nationalism had achieved in the Belfast Agreement, because obviously we wanted their supporters to buy into it. But in the long term, it that sort of contributed to this sort of connection being made in people's minds, which was that, yes, the IRA campaign may have been terrible, may have uh, resulted in all of these atrocities, but if it wasn't for it, we wouldn't have got what we did get. We're going to take a quick break here. Now, before we do, I just want to mention that Finton and I are going to be having a public conversation, which might well in some parts be a continuation of some of the stuff we're talking about right here. It's going to be at the Irish Arts Centre in New York on Tuesday, April the 11th. And the two of us are going to be talking first, I suppose, mostly about Irish issues, Finton. And then we're going to be joined by Terry McCullough, who is Chief of Staff to former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And we'll be talking about contemporary American politics. So if you're in New York, we would love to see you and meet you there. So for more information, go to irishartscentre.org. That's irishartscentre.org. And don't forget, Americans don't know how to spell centre. We'll take a break. And you're very welcome back. I'm discussing the impending anniversary of the Belfast Agreement, or Good Friday Agreement, depending which newspaper you write for, with Fintan O'Toole. Fintan, we were looking back at the events and what led up to it, but there's a lot of talk now about the structures which the Good Friday Agreement put in place and whether they're, uh, to use the cliche, not fit for purpose. What do you think? I think it's 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 pretty clear that they require radical revision. You know? um, the structures were, I mean, I suppose they were, they made assumptions which were optimistic. You know, they, they assumed that once the agreement was accepted by both sides, once it was passed by a referendum in in Northern Ireland, that there would then be a dynamic, you know, just to sort of make the institutions work, and that that dynamic would be a sort of virtuous circle, you know, that sort of once the institutions start working, everybody starts liking them, people like having local government, there's huge pressure from the population for everybody to sort of uh, continue to to operate uh, the, the structures on a kind of pragmatic basis. And... That just proved um, not to be the case for very obviously, you know, it's it's been a very stuttering process of, of uh, you know, the, the assembly being formed, executives being formed, executives collapsing, you know, um, more talks about talks going back into it. And it, it's actually um, been very tedious, I suppose. And of course, we know that the whole system is, is, is currently suspended um, pending the DUP's ability to accept the Windsor deal on the protocol, and also perhaps just as importantly, accept the fact that the that the um, the first minister will be Michelle O'Neill of, of of Sinn Fein. I think the obvious things about it was that it it was sort of freezing the situation as it was in 1998. Uh, it was kind of saying, look, these two tribes exist, and we have to. Um, formalize their existence within uh, political power structures. But actually, Northern Ireland's moved on. Um, so you, you could say, in one way, uh, the lack of fitness uh, for, for purpose of the institutions is quite a positive thing, in fact, because 
the main reason they're unfit for purpose is that actually they don't reflect the fluidity of identity within Northern Ireland. Uh, they don't reflect the ways in which the population has changed and the attitudes have changed, and particularly the the emergence of a centre ground. You know, so they they very definitely um, give excessive power to the idea that people, those who designate themselves as either nationalist or unionist, um, still essentially hold the power, and those who um, who who designate themselves otherwise are sort of left to try to manipulate the system as best they can, but it is it is weighted very heavily against them. And there are even things in the institutional structures, I think, which are just daft. Um, one of the really, really obvious mistakes that was made in the agreement was just in terms of what to call the two first ministers. I mean, calling one first minister and the other deputy first minister uh, was a re really stupid mistake because, of course, they are completely co-equal. You know, that was the whole point. They were meant to be uh, joint first ministers. And why they didn't call them joint first ministers, who the hell knows? Uh, I mean, people were bleary-eyed and probably trying to get things over the line and all the rest of it. But it, it created this sense that, um, you know, there's a there's a real first minister and then there's a kind of second grade first minister. <laughs> and Sinn Féin was kind of willing to put up with that because, you know, it, it got lots of other advantages out of, out of working the system. Um, but, of course, that's a huge problem for the DUP now. You know, uh, in terms of Michelle O'Neill being the putative first minister and poor Jeffrey having to be deputy first minister. You know, so, I mean, these are in a way small things, but of course they're not small things in this sort of sectarianized, tribalized atmosphere, which which continues to exist. So it seems to me that 25 years on, like there's a real need to comprehensively renegotiate the internal architecture of the Belfast Agreement, uh, you know, while while preserving the broader elements of it, which actually, you know, do, do remain pretty potent. In a funny kind of a way, we're going to be talking about American politics in a couple of weeks, as I said. It, it sometimes looks to me like a sort of miniaturized, foreshortened version of the problems of American politics, where they're constrained by this very complex system of checks and balances, which were put in place by a bunch of 18th century white blokes, uh, really to, to try and ensure that they wouldn't end up just with a new king. And those systems have become sort of fossilized and unable to change over the years. And it's really meant it's actually very difficult to do politics to govern and to and to to get things done and in a funny kind of a way this system which really was set up to put an end for once and for all to the majoritarianism which had blighted northern ireland for for the first half century of its existence but you know who needs to block majoritarianism when there isn't a majority anymore exactly exactly and i, I you put it really well i think you know i don't think anybody imagined in 1998 that we would, 25 years on, be in a situation where there is neither a unionist majority nor a nationalist majority, you know, or if you want to put it in even cruder terms, neither a Catholic nor a Protestant majority. The demographic change has actually been pretty dramatic uh, over, over that period. And so increasingly, the idea of the two tribes just, just, just doesn't work in describing even what Northern Irish society is like. But it is it is fossilized, as you say, within what's effectively a constitutional structure. I mean, the Belfast Dream kind of functions almost as a as a written constitution for Northern Ireland. And of course, it was all about trying to, um, you know, as as the American system did, as as you were saying, and trying to build in veto powers, you know, and and trying to build in enough blocking mechanisms so that 
neither side would have to swallow stuff that they don't like. Um, the problem, though, is that it it then actually the only people who don't have a veto or don't have real rights there are the voters. You know, so so voters can vote for whatever they like, but then you know, effectively one party, as we see with the DUP at the moment, can say, no, actually, we're not doing what we were elected to do. We're not actually taking our seats in the assembly. We're not setting up uh, the the executive, you know. So um, w- one of the obvious things that's missing in the architecture of the, the internal arrangements in, in, in under the Belfast Agreement is a sort of um, plan B, you know, um, it's maybe perfectly reasonable even now to say, well, okay, the the two biggest parties on either side get first shot at forming a government. But if one of them if one of them ducks out of that and says, actually, no, we're not doing that, surely uh, it makes complete sense for the assembly then to be able to to look for a majority within its own ranks, you know, and uh, that would have to be a cross party majority. But it doesn't necessarily have to give a veto to to any one political party which is effectively what's 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 happened now if if that political party gets a majority within its own tribe it therefore has a veto over everything else and and actually can prevent all of the institutions from working i don't think that was the way in which the designers of the agreements saw the thing functioning and certainly um in in 2023 uh, it, it is not a reflection of of the nature of Northern Ireland. Meanwhile, driven, I think it's fair to say, in part by Brexit and in part by the electoral rise of Sinn Féin, both north and south of the border, and some other factors too, the, the salience of the debate about the reunification of Ireland, the north-south debate, uh, it's become louder, um, it's become broader. Uh, there are some very interesting discussions going on. The Irish Times have be, has been part of them with its with its north-south um, project, and I think we're going to be continuing with other other similar work in the next time. However, it does it does seem to me, um, just going by the only evidence available to us, which is opinion polls, that Northern Ireland is not going to be voting in the immediate future to uh, to unite with the, with the rest of the island. So it's worth looking at what the place is like now. I was reading an interesting piece by Sam McBride, the uh, Belfast Telegraph journalist, and he was writing about how Northern Ireland is changing in front of our eyes and has already done so and will continue to do so. That the, 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 the Protestant state for a Protestant people disappeared a long time ago in the bombs and bullets and misery uh, of, of the Troubles. And what's emerging to replace it is a place that, that um, it may not be green nationalist in the traditional sense of the word, but it's certainly not blue unionist either. It's not dominated by statues of Craig and uh, and Union Jacks over every official building. It's a new, possibly interesting, possibly hybrid kind of a place. I think so, you know, and and to me, um, we've been talking about some of the negatives of the Belfast Agreement, you know, but, but we, we do need to also acknowledge that it has allowed for the creation of that hybridity, you know, simply by, again, you know, putting at the centre that question of what can you live with, you know, and the current evidence is that uh, a majority of Catholics in Northern Ireland or people from a Catholic background in Northern Ireland are still prepared to live with Northern Ireland, right? In in the immediate future, and you know, in the maybe in the medium term, they do not feel the same sense of alienation that they very reasonably felt for for so long after the foundation of Northern Ireland, and. This does create that, that, that sense of fluidity, that a much greater sense of openness. 
And you know, you're absolutely right that that. I mean, it's a, it's a slightly strange situation where you could say that the one of the things the Belfast Agreement did was that it um, it put a certain lid on the desire for a united Ireland, paradoxically by accepting its legitimacy. Right. So we know from history that if you consistently tell people that their aspirations are illegitimate and treasonous and, and repress them for those aspirations. They don't go away. They actually become much more important to people because you say, well, if, if you bastards are telling me I can't think this and feel it, well, then I'm bloody well going to think and feel it. It becomes the most important thing in my life. The Belfast Agreement said and says very, very strongly and utterly explicitly that the desire for a united Ireland is an entirely legitimate political aspiration in Northern Ireland. And of course, then it says that the British government will 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 accept it without question, you know, so, so long as there is a majority. And that itself, I think, just that statement that yes, you 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 are perfectly entitled to want this and to want it deeply, I think for a very significant part of the Catholic population in Northern Ireland, means that it's sort of capable of you know holding two time frames in its mind at the same time. It's capable of saying, I, I want this to happen over time. And I, I think people genuinely do. But I don't think it's feasible to do it now. And this really is uh, the question that, that that Brexit screwed up, I think, so badly, right? which was, uh, I think, before Brexit, you know, Northern Ireland, the island as a whole, you know, was doing a pretty good job of getting on with 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 living, you know, with living living with the current realities and 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 you know, be, being prepared to see just how sharing space is is going to change the way we are and the way we think and, and what we might want to do in the future. Brexit comes along then, and it it sort of tramples all over that in hobnail boots. It sort of says, well, you know. The people of Northern Ireland, who, by the way, are recognised in the Belfast Agreement. The Belfast Agreement talks about that people of Northern Ireland are recognised legally, internationally as an entity, have no right to decide their future in relation to a, one, a, a critical aspect of that future, which is membership of the European Union. And, of course, it, it then drove unionism, in my view, crazy. It drove unionism into uh, completely losing sight of its own interests. The great irony of the current situation is that unionism had an overwhelming interest in the Catholic population of Northern Ireland being reasonably happy to continue to exist within that entity, right? That's that's what, if you're a unionist, right, that's that's 101, right? That, that's where you should start, right? Which is, actually, you know what? The guarantor of the union is not that we've got a unionist majority, which we don't have anymore. It's that actually pretty substantial part of the Catholic population for now and in the in the medium term is happy to live here. It's happy to live with these arrangements. And then we go and we screw all that up by telling them that we're dragging them out of the European Union with, um, uh, with, with, with no consent. But also, this then led it to a sort of, um, you know, recuperation of a tribal unionism, flag-waving, chauvinistic you know, uh, that that sort of imagined some singular idea of British sovereignty that, of course, is is completely antithetical to everything in the Belfast Agreement. The Belfast Agreement is all about saying sovereignty is complex and multiple and contingent. So uh, the DUP has driven itself and has driven unionism down a blind alley. Uh, 
Uh, and that, I think, oddly, is is a much more immediate threat to the union than than what the Catholic nationalist population is going to do. Yeah, there's no doubt that you know British nationalism is exemplified, or indeed English nationalism a lot of the time is exemplified through through Brexit has been the most unpredictable and destabilizing element in in the politics of Northern Ireland for um, for a decade now. One of the ironies in that it seems to me is that all parties in the argument over Brexit and over the Northern Ireland Protocol and now over the Windsor framework all all um, protest at one point or another that they're the ones who are protecting the original in, intent of the of the Good Friday Agreement. In my view, some of them speak with forked tongue on that. But one way of looking at, um, at Brexit and the DUP's support from it is possibly as a kind of a counter-revolution against what the Good Friday Agreement, the principles which it, uh, you know, which it, which it set out, the kind of the kind of politics which it espoused, this was a backlash against that in some ways, even even if an unconscious one among the many Brexiteers in England who never realised that it was. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, you know that's true. I think uh, at the British level, you know, the overall level uh, of the UK. Because of course it it dragged everything back into a politics of a binary politics, politics of us and them. It denied the idea of kind of multiple levels of sovereignty and multiple levels of belonging and identity. You know, it was all about saying no, it's it's either one thing or the other. Which of course the Belfast Agreement, with its with its great statement that everybody in Northern Ireland can be Irish or British or both, as they may so choose, you know, had had conceptually unraveled. You know, this idea that. You can only have one identity and you can't choose it. It's it's there. It's given to you by God or blood or whatever it is. So at the British level, that's absolutely true. And I think also at the at the level of Northern Ireland, it was true. Uh, I think a huge part of the recreational unionism that was uh, in, indulged in by the DUP was just being fed up with having to deal with the shinners, you know, fed up with having to, you know, operate these, these mechanisms uh, in which um, you know power was was continually negotiated and shared and and divvied up, um, and it was a sort of fantasy really that you could go back to, you know, uh, Northern Ireland is what we say it is, you know, because that's what it's effectively it was, right? Which was it doesn't matter that uh, Northern Ireland, the people of Northern Ireland, have voted to stay in the European Union. We, as a unionist elite a vanguard, get to say what 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 the future of Northern Ireland is and should be, what its identity should be. And so there's a fantasy in that. I mean, I personally, my guess is that I don't think they ever thought it was going to happen. I mean, I think it was a sort of it was a day trip. They thought, you know, to to the to the to to to, to the seaside where you could sort of you know indulge yourself and wave your flags and and have a bit of fun. Uh, and it turned out to be a one-way ticket, you know, that you could you 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 couldn't you couldn't get out of it, and they just kept doubling down, doubling down, because that's the only way they know how to do things. But it actually does lead us to what what remains a very dangerous uh, set of circumstances, really, which is there's a huge imbalance between the political capability of Irish nationalism, defined very broadly, and the political capability of Irish unionism, you know. Um, and even if you're, this is the irony, even if you're an Irish nationalist, you actually want unionists to be well-led. You want them to have a clear sense of where their collective interests lie, of what their real aims are and how they think those aims can be best achieved. Because that's that's the game in the end is a game of reconciliation. You know, to go back to Hume's point, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to make, uh, make peace with, with, with yourself. You know, you have to make peace with the other crowd. 
And the other crowd for Irish nationalism still, for all the changes and all the fluidity, remains Irish unionism. And it's it's terribly badly led at the moment. I mean, it, it's it, it's it, I, I cannot think genuinely, I can't think of a parallel in recent times anywhere in the world of a political community which has acted so starkly against its own most basic interests as the DUP has done for 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 Ulster unionism over over the last seven or eight years. A last question, Finton, then, taking all that on board. I mean, if it's true, as it seems to be at the moment, that the kind of the post-Brexit storms across the water are are easing and a certain element of pragmatic sanity has returned in the in Rishi Sunak's policies and seems quite possible that, that they will be continued um, by a Labour government should that be successful next year in, in an election. I mean, and if the DUP, as it looks like, will probably grudgingly return to power, I mean, do we have some hope of a of a of a period of stability in which some of the some of the changes we're discussing, which I think we we both agree are necessary, that they they, they might begin to happen? I think there's a reasonable hope. I think you know one, one has to keep keep that open. I think a lot will depend on how Sinn Fein handles its ascendancy. You know. Uh, so even though this kind of first minister thing is really only a trick of language, uh, it does it has acquired a symbolic power. So so how Michelle O'Neill conducts herself, I mean how how Sinn Fein, you know, let's assume right that the the executive is reformed. I mean how how it behaves towards unionism in general is 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 going to set the atmosphere. I think. And then it crucially depends on whether or not the political skill exists within the DUP. Uh, I mean, is basically, as Jeffrey Donaldson, capable of guiding his party through this, this period of craziness and get, getting it out the other side where it goes back to accepting that, um, that, that actually its, its position is to, to help run Northern Ireland and to try to make Northern Ireland as attractive a place as it possibly can. And of course, the only way to make Northern Ireland um, attractive is to work the protocol. I mean, the hilarious moment when Rishi Sunak in Belfast told us all that Northern Ireland was now the most exciting economic entity in the world because it can trade with the, with the EU and with the internal British market, you know, was a bit surreal. But there is a core of truth in it. I mean, actually, there is a huge opportunity for Northern Ireland here. You know, it really can um, begin to be a place where it becomes very, very attractive for investment, um, and and you know there, there there is you can see a sort of economic path that that might really um, make the place more prosperous and more stable, but it just desperately depends on uh, on on the political skill uh, to 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 accept that and to make the most of it. Um, and to accept the gifts that you're being given. I mean, Northern Ireland has been given an incredible deal. You know, it, it like for for all the the wringing of hands and all the angst out of it. I mean, it's actually got itself into a, a pretty extraordinary position. The Europeans have been very, very generous about it, to be quite frank. Uh, and uh, if you can't exploit your good fortune. Then I think you you have to say that Northern Ireland as an entity does not have a long term future, right? It's it, it's it's been given a chance to do something, to to make itself a really interesting dynamic place, and if it can't collectively take that opportunity, then the future of unionism in particular seems particularly bleak. 
On that highly qualified optimistic note, we will leave it there. Thanks to Finton. Thanks also to our producers, uh, Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thank you for listening.